Father, thank you for your incredible goodness. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that your strength is made perfect in the midst of our weakness. Lord, we need you. We need a firm foundation. We need guidance. We need direction. We need to be rooted and grounded in love so that the storms of this world won't sway us. Lord, would you speak to us through your word? Would we hear your voice this morning is my prayer? Through the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, open our hearts to you, I pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. I want you to imagine for a second that there's a knock at your door. You open the door, and there you see what you hope to never see outside of your door. There's an officer standing there with a a grim look on his face. And as he looks at you, he says, I have to tell you that your son was brutally murdered. What emotions begin to go through you? What, what types of feelings do you have in that moment? Is it okay to be angry in that moment? Knowing that somebody has just killed your son. But I want you to imagine how your perspective changes when, when he says, but that's not all. I need to let you know that we caught the person that murdered your son. It's your daughter. Are you still angry that your son was murdered? Did anything change about that anger? Would anything change about how you would want the person who was the perpetrator, the one who murdered your son, to be treated? Is there any difference in how you would treat a nameless figure who murdered your son and your own daughter who chose to perform such a horrendous act? I I cannot fathom what it would be like to handle this type of emotion. But it helps me to grasp what God is going through in Revelation chapter 14. We've been going through the three angels' messages. And we're now in the third angel's message. And when you get to the third angel's message, you're suddenly like, hang on. Wasn't it all summarized as the everlasting gospel, the good news, which is not good advice. It's about what Jesus has done, not about what I have done. Isn't it the last message of mercy to the world? And then you read it and look at what it says, starting in Revelation 14 and verse uh, 9. Then the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on his forehead or on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is the most intense warning many say in all of Scripture. And, and sometimes I read this and I think, God full of wrath, God full of, of these emotions, is this the reality of who God is? Is God love and yet God full of wrath? Is anger a part of love? 
Well, I can tell you, if somebody did something to my daughter, anger would be a response of love. How much more for a God who loves each and every one of his creatures on this planet, on a level that we can only begin to scrape the surface of when he recognizes the hurt, the pain that is caused by sin. When we wound each other, when we hurt each other, when we are, are, are actors in bringing pain and suffering to those around us. So it's fascinating because this is known as the last message of mercy to the world just before Jesus comes back. In fact, in a third, uh, let's see where it is here. In the Review and Herald, it's summarized in this way. It says, justification by faith is the third angel's message in verity. Did you get that when you just read that? The mark of the beast. Whoever worships the mark of the beast is, is going to be tortured in the presence of the lamb. Is this? Right? Justification by faith and verity. Well, today we're not going to break down the details of the third angel's message, but we're going to give a story that gives us the context of what this is really all about. Because you remember that all the books of the Bible, they meet and end in Revelation. So the very first time that we find a story that gives us many uh, uh, types and figures that help to lead us to an understanding of this is in Genesis chapter 4. So if you have your Bible, go there with me to Genesis chapter 4, where we find parents who experience what we just imagined going through. And those of you who are parents, you can imagine that horrific thought to know that your own child was murdered, let alone to know that your other child was the perpetrator. Well, Genesis chapter 4 says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, and said, I have acquired a man from the Lord. Now in Hebrew it just says, I have acquired a man, the Lord. The, from the Lord is, is, not, is not there. Uh, and, and it gives us the idea that, that, that Eve thinks that the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 has just taken place, where God said, hey, one of your seed is going to come and is going to crush the serpent's head, is going to, to put enmity between you and the serpent. And she's thinking, maybe this is it. Cain, I have high hopes for Cain, this beautiful child that I have just had. She loves Cain. Adam loves Cain. Verse 2, then she began this, t- this time, uh, then she bore again this time, his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of, the gr- of ground to the Lord. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. And the Lord respected Abel and his offering, but he did not respect Cain and his offering. So here you get a picture of where they both build altars. They're both coming to worship, it says, the Lord. They're coming to worship Yahweh. They're coming to participate in a religious service. But as they come, Cain brings the fruit of his own labor. Now, if you go up to our farm tomorrow from 9 to 3, you're welcome to come join us. You go up to the farm and most plants that you harvest from, we end up being able to harvest more from it. And it's, there's something different about bringing a lamb and having to see that lamb die. And there is no rejuvenation that takes place. There's no roots that are going to bring up more fruit in the future. This is a, a, a complete sacrifice that's taking place. 
But not only that, you get glimmers from earlier on in the story in Genesis chapter 3 after the fall that Adam and Eve, what do they do when they're trying to hide from God? What do they first do to cover their nakedness? They put on fig leaves. And then God comes and he comes and gives them the promise of salvation. And then immediately after that, he clothes them with the skins of a lamb. So you get this idea that that God had been revealing to them that that there's a coming Savior and he's going to be represented by the Lamb. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But here you find something else fascinating because you have Cain's, it it describes in verse 3 that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground to the Lord. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat. So Cain, he's bringing something that's to the Lord. He's bringing something of a gift to God. He's trying to get God to feel differently about him. He's bringing something because God requires something of me. God arbitrarily, uh, selfishly is wanting me to bring something to him so that he'll treat me with respect. But Abel? Abel's just coming and he's bringing the lamb that represents the gift of God to him. The Messiah who's coming. What God is going to do for him in Christ. He's trusting completely in the coming Savior. I love how it summarizes this in the book Patriarchs and Prophets and it's so well put that I hope you'll stick with this. Page 72 it says he felt as many now feel, this is Cain, that it would be an acknowledgement of weakness to follow the expected marked out by God a plan marked out by God of trusting his salvation wholly to the atonement of the promised Savior. So for Cain, thinking to trust completely and totally to the promised atonement of the coming Savior, that was, that was weakness to him. Have you ever felt that way before? Oh yeah. Here goes Pastor again. He's talking about this grace, that you need grace, that you need to rest. You remember what we talked about last week? That you have to rest in his love before you can have the strength and energy to be able to fulfill the commandments of loving God and loving other people. And we begin to feel like, no, 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 that's weak. That's, that's, not, that's not enough. You've got you to gotta man up and you've got to be able to pull off your religion by pull yourself up by your bootstraps with your religion. But notice what it says. Many have thought it was weakness to follow the exact plan of God of trusting his salvation wholly to the atonement of the promised Savior. He chose the course, Cain, this is, of self-dependence. He would come in his own merits. He would not bring the lamb and mingle its blood with his offering, but would present his fruits, the products of his labor. He presented his offering as a favor done to God through which he expected to secure the divine approval. He's bringing it to God, expecting that, hey, God's going to be, he's going to like me more after this. But here's the deal. God already loves you. Is that good news? Have you been resting in his love this week? Have you been energized by that? Anybody else been energized by that this week? It is empowering when you recognize the fact that you can rest in the love of God. Cain obeyed in building an altar, obeyed in bringing a sacrifice, but he rendered only a partial obedience. The essential part, the recognition of the need of a Redeemer was left out. 
He didn't recognize or didn't acknowledge. He had too much pride, too much self-dependence to say, I don't have any salvation apart from Jesus. Jesus is absolutely everything to me. See, that's the only way to stand in the end. When Christ is our complete salvation, when he is our cornerstone, he's our everything. It goes on to say, Cain and Abel represent two classes that will exist in the world till the close of time. One class avail themselves of the appointed sacrifice for sin. The other venture to depend upon their own merits. The class of worshipers who follow the example of Cain includes by far the greater portion of the world. We talked about how Babylon, this is the whole system of Babylon. I will ascend. Is this not great Babylon which I have made? It's about a religion of self. For nearly every false religion has been based on the same principle that man can depend upon his own efforts for salvation. This is the religion that's innate to our hearts. That i got to do something. I have to somehow win God's approval. I have to somehow bring Him something. But He loves you already. And He has chosen to promise you salvation through the blood of the Lamb. And as you let that sink in more deeply, it'll change absolutely everything and empower you through the power of the Holy Spirit to actually keep His commandments. You know, you think about this. It says that all the way down to the end, there will be these two classes of people. There will be those that are like Cain and those that are like Abel. And they both brought an offering. They both were worshiping. Does it matter what symbol we use? Does it matter uh, how we worship? The symbol matters because of what's going on in our own hearts. And it's similar as we come down to the end and we found last week that Babylon is lacking in the commandments of God because they're not resting in the love of God and they end up having no rest day or not day or night. They're not energized to actually be able to fulfill the law of God. And at the heart of that Ten Commandment law is the Seventh-day Sabbath, which says, God created you. You didn't have anything to do with that. So ascribe worth to him. And God saved you. You had nothing to do with that either. It is finished. Rest in what he has done for you. Once a week, set aside everything else and rest in the reality of what God has done for you. And so we have the choice. Do we rest in that? Do we follow that symbol or do we bring a different form of worship? And we'll go more into that on a future week as we look a little bit more at the mark of the beast. So God doesn't respect Cain's offering. And verse 5 continues, And Cain was very angry and his countenance fell. We get upset when we're trying so hard and we're desperately wanting to to do everything right and it's not working out and we're relying upon ourselves and we begin to just have to guard self even more than we have before. So the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why has your countenance fallen? Similar to how he came to Adam and Eve saying, Why are you hiding? What's going on here? God comes close to us in the midst of our rebellion and he gives us other opportunities and he he wants to open our eyes to see that there is a solution. In fact, he goes on to give Cain a very clear solution. If you do, well, I shouldn't say clear. Verse 7 is the hardest Hebrew to understand in all the book of Genesis. So verse 7 is a, you'll find it different between, for instance, the New King James and the King James Version. Uh, Lots of versions translate a little bit differently, but we can get it out of this. Uh, If you do well, 
will you not be accepted? What does God mean by if you do well? Is he saying, Cain, you need to work on your actions. He is in a sense, right? What action is he talking about? The action of utter and complete dependence upon the love of Jesus Christ is revealed in the slain lamb. That's the one action that he's talking about. If you do well, you'll be accepted. You can do just like Abel did. You can come with that same sacrifice. But we'll find out here in a second that there's a little bit of difficulty there. There's a little bit of pride that's keeping Cain from that. And it goes on to say, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door. Now that word sin, kata, is actually the word used for a sin offering uh, that's used for in, 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 in the Exodus when it's talking about that you should bring a sin offering. The idea here is that there's a sin offering that's available to you. So some commentators actually take this to say, hey, if you don't do well, then there's a sin offering available to you. There's forgiveness for you. Jesus is enough. Even though you've turned your back on it, turn back now. There is forgiveness available to you. Or if we just read it like the New King James has it, if you do not do well, sin lies at the door and its desire is for you, but you should rule over it. So how do we overcome sin? How do we rule over sin in our lives? How do we keep it? If it's at the door, if it's wanting in, there's all these pressures, all these these things in our life that are tempting us, that are wanting to pull us down. How do we wage war against sin? We need to be Protestants against sin. And how do we do that? By the Lamb. By looking to the Lamb, for the Lamb of God takes away the sin of the world. By looking to the cross and realizing that the God of the universe is a God of infinite love who loves us more than his own existence. He said, I would rather for them to live than for me. And the wages of sin is death. And so I'm laying down my life willingly so they can have everlasting life. It doesn't get more beautiful than that. And the more that we rest and focus in on that love, the more that our hearts are going to be transformed to be able to love, to be able to fulfill the, the commandments ourselves. But you'll notice if you read this last line in the King James Version, that translates the pronouns a little bit different, and it'll say, and his desire is for you, but you should rule over him. If we translate it that way, it's meaning that Abel's desire is for you, Cain. Abel's love. His, his, Abel actually has a, you in mind. He has a heart for you. And you should rule over him. What is this talking about? Abel was the second born. Cain was the first born. And so Cain had this right of the firstborn. Cain had this capacity to be able to, to be the, the priest of the family, to have this special role that the Messiah would come through his line, at least if he, if he were willing to, to, to fulfill that role. But Cain obviously had a pride issue. Because what would Cain have had to have done in order to get a lamb? He was the one that tilled the soil. He was the one that, that knew how to, to farm. He would have had to go to little brother, be like, hey, little brother, um, so I messed up, and uh, I need a lamb. <laughs> could, I, could I buy a lamb from you so that I could go and I could offer this offering to God? And, and it would have felt like he had to humble himself, like he had to put himself down. And, and God's saying, don't worry. 
Abel is not out to get you. You're going to have your position even if you have to, to humble yourself and go to him to get a lamb from him. No matter how we re- interpret this verse, we recognize that what it is telling us is that Jesus is everything. Your friendship with Jesus is everything. Trusting in him completely is the only thing that will see you through. It can't get any better or any simpler or any clearer than that. Verse 9 then continues. Oh, verse 8 says, Now Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain raised, rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. So here you have this picture again of what we've been seeing takes place with Babylon. What we've been seeing in Revelation 13 takes place with this land-like beast that's going to end up enforcing the mark of the beast and saying, if if you don't take the mark of the beast, you're not going to be able to buy or sell. And then eventually saying, those who don't take it are going, those who refuse to worship the beast are going to die. What did we see just a, a week or so ago? Science of the Times, May 6, 1897, says force is the last resort of every false religion. When when we come to recognize that that all of our strivings, all of our seeking to build ourselves up, our self-preservation just isn't working, we begin to try to tear everybody else down. And this starts by our accusations of others. This starts by our criticism of other people. And it's all too easy. You feel good just picking a person apart bit by bit and saying, man, look at how they did this. Look at how they did that. And man, they're so wrong on this. And pretty soon we begin to feel good about ourselves because look at how bad that person is. But the end result of this is violence. It's force. This is why Jesus said uh, of Satan in Matthew, in John 8, 44, that he was the one who was lying from the beginning. He had murder in his heart. From the very beginning. He's the the murderer from the very beginning. How was he murdering in the beginning? He was lying against God. He was lying against the source of life. And in that very lie were the seeds of murder. And here you see that the first criminal action in the Bible that would have been the first thing to send somebody to prison, to send them to death, death row, it's the result of false worship. And then you get to to Revelation and you find that that what takes place in the very end, what is the persecution of God's people, takes place through false worship. You see, it's really dangerous when we begin to to have a false view of God and we have that picture we've talked about the last few weeks where he says, worship me or burn. You've got to earn my favor. You've got to appease me. Bring me things so that I'll feel better about you. We've got to learn to rest in his love. And when we do, he has beautiful things in store for us. Now verse 9, Then the Lord said to Cain, Where is Abel your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? You probably have heard that as a popular phrase. Am I my brother's keeper? Am I my brother's keeper? You see what took place. His false religion led him to the place where he tore down his brother so much that he didn't have love for his brother. He didn't even care about his brother anymore. And it's easy for us to just look at this and to say, yeah, well, I know that my brother's valuable. At least I do now. I'll tell you a little bit about my brother growing up. He was seven and a half years older than me. 
And we fought a lot growing up. And he didn't want to play with his annoying little brother that much, even though I'm sure he was way more patient than I remembered in my own mind. But of course, I got to college and we became friends again and and things changed. And, and I recognized the value of my brother to the place where when I got married, he was my best man in my wedding. And we're friends to this day where we can talk about things and we can. I learned so much from him. I really appreciate him. So for me, the idea of being my, my brother's keeper is no problem. But, but here's the incredible thing about the biblical reality that is different from the reality that the rest of the world has in order to, uh, that, than any other religion or any other belief set really has to tie humanity together, to value every single person on the planet. You see, this book tells me that we descended from Adam and Eve. And and then it goes on to say that, hey, eventually there was this family of Noah that was the one family that was preserved through the flood and that that you and I have have one great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. His name was Noah. And so you are my family. We are one family family. What happens to you should hurt me then. And, and when I, I treat you wrong, I'm treating my family wrong. This should break down every wall, every barrier in our world today if we truly embl- embrace the reality of what's revealed that we are a common human family. Family watches out for each other, at least they should. Family doesn't want to see family get hurt. And family wants to be their brother's keeper. (laughs) But Cain didn't get that. He said, am I my brother's keeper? I don't want anything to do with Cain. I didn't. He wanted to silence the voice of Cain. And so look at what takes place. Verse 10, and God said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. You see, God feels every bit of heartache, every bit of suffering, every bit of pain in every human being, every bit of his creation on this planet. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He doesn't feel, well, well, he goes on to say, when you till the ground, God says, it shall no longer yield its strength to you. A fugitive and a vagabond, you shall be on the earth. You see what he's doing? He's saying, you wanted to silence Abel. You wanted to stop. You wanted to cut yourself off from that. So here's what I'm doing. I'm giving you over to be a fugitive. I'm giving you over to be a vagabond. I'm letting you to go away. Which is really what Cain wanted by his murder, murderous actions. And Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. He's not worried about being separated from people. But what he goes on to say is somebody's going to come and kill me. What Cain is worried about is self-preservation. That's what started the whole thing. That's what led him to kill his brother. And in the final judgment, all he's worried about is, God, somebody's going to come kill me. What's going to happen to me? And as long as that's all I'm worried about on this planet, I too am following the beast. I too am following Babylon. I have not accepted that the third angel's message is justification by faith and verity and trusting in the righteousness of the Lamb, trusting in Jesus and His love. Well, what does God do? Verse 15, And the Lord said to him, Therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark on Cain, lest anyone finding him should kill him. Then Cain went out from the presence 
of the Lord. He was separated from God, separated from his family. He was cut off. He was, a mark was put on him and he was cut off from all of those relationships. And at the end of the third angel's message, we find a people who have no rest day or night. They're cut off from the presence of God in the end. And we'll unpack that a little bit more, but here you see this this picture of what really matters in the end is to trust completely in the Lamb of God who is slain from the foundation of the world. Revelation 14, 12 said, Here is the endurance of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God and have the faith of Jesus. So I want to ask you today, as we are trusting in Jesus, you know, as Christians, it's easy for us to say that we trust in Jesus. Has that led you, has that led me to be my brother's keeper? Has that led me to care about my brothers and sisters who are near and who are far away on this planet? Seven billion of them. Today they're going through a lot of different things out there. It's a lot of pain, a lot of suffering, a lot of hurt. But a lot of times I tend to think that I'm on one team and this group's in another team. You know, in high school, I remember that we had enemies as flag football players. We weren't even playing real football. We're flag football players. And there was that, that other high school. And when we go to play them, man, I hated those guys. Hated them. I wanted to fight them. I wanted to knock them out. I wanted to do whatever it took to just demolish them and beat them. And we were on different teams. And then we went to college. And the odd thing happened that those same guys went to the same school that I went to. And, you know, they were pretty good at sports. And and I didn't know a lot of the other people there. So the only thing that made sense was when it was intramurals time and it's time to play football. Well, yeah. I'll get on the team with those guys, my enemies, the ones that I hated. And, and now that I'm closer to them, I begin to realize these guys aren't so bad after all. Maybe I was part of the problem. Maybe I was the bulk of the problem. If we we'll only draw close to people, we begin to recognize that these are our brothers and sisters. And that God loves them with an infinite love, so much so that he laid down his life. And friends, the third angel's message leads us to love. And that is what has has taken place for those who have come to study this prophetic message for themselves. Let me just give you an example. The Seventh-day Adventist church, the pioneers of this church, when they began to study through the prophecies of of Revelation 13 and 14, and they're seeing, oh, wow, this is what's going to happen. There's going to be coerced worship. It's going to take place with this lamb-like beast, the United States. If this sounds crazy and you don't know what I'm talking about, Look back on our YouTube channel and you'll find sermons where I've explained this a little bit more detail. But so this United States is, is this lamb-like beast that ends up speaking like a dragon as they're studying this and they pinpoint the reality of who this is pointing out, that this is pointing out the United States. Let me just read what some of, of, of the Adventist pioneers, the types of radical stances that they took. I mean, these are people who, as they say these things, as they write these things in publications, they are actively putting themselves in the place of being persecuted for some of the things that they're saying. But they recognize that they are their brother's keeper. J. 
J.N. Andrews. I went to Andrews University to get my master's, so there's a statue of him there. He's one of our pioneers. He said, The institution of slavery most clearly reveals the dragon spirit of this hypocritical nation. He looked out and he said, hey, there's three and a half million slaves. And, and this represents the fact that we as a nation are speaking like a dragon. Uriah Smith, he wrote a poem. He was just a young guy writing in the re- Review and Herald in 1853. This is before the Civil War. So this is a bold thing to be saying. He's at a land of freedom pillared on the broad and open basis of equality. A land reposing neath the gentle sway of civil and religious liberty. Lamb-like in form, is there no dragon voice heard in our land? No notes that harshly grate upon the ear of mercy, love, and truth, and put humanity to open shame? Let the united cry of millions tell, millions that groan beneath oppression's rod, beneath the sin-forged chains of slavery. Robbed of their rights, to brutes degraded down, and soul and body bound to others' will. They were, they were radical about seeing the world and the brothers and sisters around them and saying, yeah, I realize that Christians are embracing this. I realize that this hatred is, is really being even supported supposedly by the Bible, but I will have nothing to do with this. And they stood up against it. And that too is what we are called to as believers in the soon return of Jesus Christ, as believers in the third angel's message, which is justification by faith. James White, he wrote this, Many things are esteemed sacred in America. The most sacred thing is slavery. The Constitution is held sacred, but not as sacred as slavery. Liberty is held sacred, but not so sacred as slavery. The Bible is held sacred, but not so sacred as slavery. Its Decalogue, its Golden Rule, its Law, its Gospel are all revised and set aside by the Code of Slavery. So this just doesn't make sense. We say one thing, but in reality we're living like the dragon. J.N. Loughborough wrote this in his his article on the Two-Horned Beast. He said the Declaration of Independence should have a clause supplied and should read, all men are created free and equal, except three, three and a half million slaves. And Ellen White wrote an article in 1896. Now we're going past the Civil War, saying, okay, this is taking place. We see the Emancipation Act taking place. But in 1896, she wrote an article titled, Am I My Brother's Keeper? What responsibility do I have for those who have been oppressed, for those who for centuries have not had the privileges that I have been able to have or that my family has been able to have. She says this, The law of God contained in the Ten Commandments reveals to man his duty to love God supremely and his neighbor as himself. The American nation owes a debt of love to the colored race, and God has ordained that they should make restitution for the wrong they have done them in the past. Those who have taken no active part in enforcing slavery upon the colored people are not relieved from the responsibility of making special efforts to remove as far as possible the sure result of their enslavement. As a people, we should no longer say by our attitude, am I my brother's keeper? We should arouse ourselves to do justly, to love mercy. We should make manifest by our actions that we have the faith for which the saints are to contend. We should go forth to seek the the oppressed, to lift up the fallen, 
and to bring help to those who need our assistance. Friends, these are our marching orders. We saw last week looking at the golden rule that that any religion that oppresses the rights of others, that that doesn't respect the rights of others, is a spurious religion, a false religion, a fake religion. And so merely understanding the sign and the symbol of the mark and the seal, the mark of the beast and the seal of God, is not enough. What matters is for the character that is represented by that sign and by that seal, and we'll unpack those more in coming weeks, for that character to be replicated in my life as I trust completely to the Lamb of God. And you know, as you do that, you imagine what it was like for Abel as he, as he takes this lamb. He has to do the surrender thing. I mean, maybe, maybe that lamb he had had the privilege of feeding by hand and giving a bottle of milk to by hand. He loved this little lamb and he cared for this lamb. And then suddenly the realization came, I need a, a sacrifice. And he had to take that lamb that he loved so much and offer it there on the altar. And I'm coming to realize that I don't keep it fresh enough in my mind that every bit of selfishness, every sin in my life is what drove the nails into Jesus' hands. It's why he chose to lay down his life for me. It's why he cried out in that last moment, my God, my God, why am I forsaken? Why have you forsaken me? He experienced the separation, the the forsakenness that Cain felt willingly on your behalf, on my behalf, so that you and I can be forever connected with God and connected with each other. So that leaves me to say, I am the greatest sinner, for I have crucified the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He had to die for me. And so when I see that maybe there's some things wrong in your life, I can't help but give you grace knowing that I am at fault for putting the Son of God to death. And I hope that as we fix our eyes on that gift, the one who is willing to lay down his life willingly for us to transform our hearts and minds, that we too, we all will be able to love and to look out for our brother the way that we look out for ourselves, And to recognize that our brother extends far beyond who we thought it did. But it extends to those that, that Leonard recognized are, are modern day slaves, I think is the word you used, who are out in the fields here, who are picking things and they, they get paid based on how much they, they, they pick and they come to Leonard and their backs are, are aching, they're sore, they're, they're working for a pittance. You know what Leonard's done? He said, I'm going to come close to these people. I'm going to help them in any way that I possibly can. And as I see any bit of people that are suffering on this planet, my role as my brother's keeper is to come close to them, to listen to them, to step down to their level and to say, how can I help? Maybe you don't have the the physical therapy ability, but maybe you have business prowess and you can help them to know how to to take care of their business needs. Or, Or maybe... Maybe you have some other medical uh, expertise or or maybe you just have the finances that you can say, hey, I want to help you to get a solid foundation for your life. And 
And I just want to say that there are some of you sitting here who have been so generous and so giving in your lives. And I just want to say thank you. Because Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples by the love that you have for one another. And the difference between those that accept the mark of the beast in the end and those who are the 144,000 in Revelation 14, it says they follow the lamb wherever he goes. I want to be a part of that. I want to follow him wherever he goes. To every person, no matter who they look like, no matter what they've done, to chase them down, to pursue them in love and to say, I want for you to find a better life. Now don't get me wrong, if you have been seriously hurt by somebody in your life, this doesn't mean that you don't set up boundaries in order to keep them from hurting you again. If your daughter was the one who murdered your son, like we talked about at the beginning, I want you to think about how you would act towards her. I imagine that you would run to her and say, Why? Why? If that were my daughter, I'd wrap my arms around her and say, What are you what happened? What brought you to this? And I would want every bit of justice that would be redemptive in her life to take place. No matter how hard it was for her, no matter if it caused her difficulty, I would want for her to to go through whatever it took for things to be made right. And that's the way God feels about you and me. He wants to do whatever it takes to transform our hearts so that we can experience that seal of God that comes through the Holy Spirit, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 4 says, and the Romans 5, 5 says, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out through the Holy Spirit in your hearts. As we close today, I want to listen to a song uh, by Andy Gillihorn. And this song, I need, I need you to just, just pay attention really quick here to the three vignettes that are going to come through in this song. And, and as you do this, I want you to think about those that are to you despicable, those that are to you the, the ones that are undeserving of love, those that are undeserving of your help, that are unworthy in your mind. And to think about how God feels about that child of his. It begins by telling us the story of a man who walks into a marketplace filled with women and children and straps with bombs duct taped to his chest. It's a suicide bomber. And it tells us that God loves that guy. And then it tells us about a man who had a wife and kids but followed his co-worker thinking it was love and left his family and his kids behind. And then we find him on the verge of committing suicide. And it tells us that God loves that guy. But then he says this, this key line, Me, on the other hand, I can write somebody off like the last check for a student loan. Remember how excited you were to pay off that last bit of your student loan? How exciting it is to get that done with? We can write people off that easily. This is why they don't need my help. This is why they don't deserve it. They're on the other team. I can love when it's convenient, but it's not always convenient. It's not always the easy road. And then he closes by that guy who is the chief of sinners. And it's the one that he sees in the mirror. And he says, God loves that guy too. Let's pray. God, thank you that you love that guy. The one that's looking back at me in the mirror. The one that's guilty. The one for whom Jesus died. 
Lord God, I pray that I would trust completely and totally to the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lord, give us a hatred for sin and a love for Jesus and a complete trust in Jesus. And Lord, would that stir in us as we look to Jesus and the love that you had for every one of the 7 billion people on this planet. We pray that you would stir that same love for us that we would be willing to lay down our lives for the people around us. To sacrifice a little, to set aside our time, to set aside our finances, to set aside anything that we might by some means help somebody to know the love of God. Thank you for the love that you show us day to day. Lord, may we immerse ourselves in this. May we rest in this. May we focus on it day in and day out. Wake us up every day for time in your word to meditate on the love of God. And may that transform our hearts from the inside out. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.